verses 1 through 13. The word of our Lord from the gospel says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory unto glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We come to what is called the Transfiguration. And we naturally ask, what in the world is going on? That's a, a question that always comes to our minds when we're, when we're caught in these passages of Scripture that are difficult to understand, that stretch our imaginations a bit. Typically, we find ourselves asking that, that question in every single passage of the Revelation. What in the world is going on? What does all this mean? Is something being implied here? Am I supposed to be reading through the lines? Am I supposed to understand all that is going on? Even the term itself, the transfiguration, is a wild term. What does that mean? Well, in answer to that question, what in the world is going on, it would do us, it would do us well to remember that it, it's actually something otherworldly that's going on. We have a glimpse of, of Christ's glory 
and Christ's majesty, unlike we find in the rest of the Gospels. These three disciples, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, the inner ring, they're taken up on this mountain by Jesus. And they catch a glimpse of the majesty of Christ. His beauty is gazed upon. They're given the opportunity to gaze upon actually beauty itself. Or better yet, beauty himself. And they're reminded that he's the one that is called the lily of the valleys. The one who is majestic. The one who is beautiful. As they gaze upon the majesty of Christ, they're afforded the opportunity to remember by the brilliance that shines from His face and shines from His clothes that this is the one who hung the stars. This is the one who formed the intricacies of all the millions of species. This is the one who crafted the incomprehensible vastness of the ocean. When we step out into the sands of a beach and look out upon the ocean, we should rightly be amazed and perplexed by its hugeness. I mean, think about it. It seems to go on forever. You can't see the other side of it. All you see is this broken mirror with light shining everywhere as the waves crest. This is the one who made that. And so the disciples, these three, are carried up on this mountain and they're captured by the majesty of Christ. His shocking beauty amazes them. They see beauty that they've not seen before that mountain. They see beauty that they don't see beyond it. In fact, they'll see tragedy and they'll see blood and they'll see violence soon after this mountain. But while they're on the mountain, they see His majesty. They see His beauty. In the transfiguration, we're also captured by the mystery of worship. We ought to be captivated in worship by His love and by His life. See, the gospel... Worship is about bringing us to the gospel. And the gospel is more than just the fleshing out of details and ideas. It's more than just the filling of our minds with information. The gospel is more than the organizing of our thoughts or the systematizing of our beliefs. The gospel is more than that. The gospel ought to bring us to a place of mystery. It ought to bring us to a place where our minds are blown, so to speak. The gospel is directed toward the transformation of our lives. And that's something that's hard to systematize. That's something that it's hard to get our minds around. That God, in His good news to us, wants to recreate us. He has redeemed us. This is what we mean when we talk about the salvation of souls or when we talk about the redemption of hearts. God wants to transform lives. And that's done by more than just information being passed toward our brains. So the gospel is not something that can be captured and bound into a little compartment. The gospel ought to blow us away by the mystery of what God has done in creating us and in recreating us. God has done things that ought to blow our minds. 
The gospel is directed toward the transformation of our lives, but it's directed also toward the rending of our hearts by beauty. Beauty that shakes us in the depths of our souls. The gospel is directed toward the blowing of our minds by the one who cannot be contained. C.S. Lewis said that if God can fit into your brain, then that's not the God of the scriptures. That God's too small. And see, worship is about mystery. It's about coming into the presence of God, which ought to captivate us. We ought to scratch our heads in worship. When you read Isaiah's account of him coming in chapter 6 into the presence of God Himself, and the train of His robe fills the temple with glory. We, in the church, we kind of just pass over that and think, oh, okay, yeah, ho-hum. We use that term glory as if it's something that's tangible, but glory is, you describe what glory is. You can't fully describe it. It's, it's majesty. Well, what does that mean? It's brilliance. It's, it's brightness. But it's not just physical brightness, and it's not intellectual brilliance. It's something beyond itself that carries our minds to another world. Now, Isaiah falls down before God rightly. Woe is me. I'm I'm finished. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And what undoes him? My eyes have seen the Lord. You know, we hear that term, the Lord of hosts. And we think, oh, okay. And in the church, we kind of take that term for granted. Oh, yeah, you know, he's the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? I love that the New Living Translation translated the Lord of Heaven's Armies, which is something a little bit more vivid, a little bit more concrete than, uh, than the abstract Lord of Hosts, but it's also something that ought to fill us with terror. The Lord of Heaven's Armies is the one we worship. He's the one who is the mysterious one the direction of our worship. Anytime worship can just fit nicely into our heads and we think of worship as just A, B, and C, yeah, we sing this song and then we hear that thing and you know, we go and then apply it to our lives, we have not truly worshipped. This does not excuse a, uh, uh, it doesn't excuse a sermon that doesn't make sense and it doesn't excuse a sermon that doesn't give us something to, to, to live out. What it does is it, 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 it opens the opportunity for our minds to be stretched a bit. For us to be puzzled a bit in worship. And I know sometimes when I preach, I, I get a little puzzling and I get a little, you know, out in left field or I wander around a bit. I'm not trying to make excuses for that. I'm saying that unless our worship brings us to a place where we are blown away by God, we've not rightly worshipped. These disciples, these are the three. Notice, these are the three up within the twelve. These are... Jesus' closest of close ones. 
These three have been afforded other opportunities that the other nine hadn't been afforded. And here's this one. And they're brought up on this mountain and they're blown away. Jesus is transformed before them and he's brilliantly bright. He's glowing like the sun. One of the other gospel writers says that his clothes became whiter than any then anybody can get them. The, the brightest, the strongest of bleach can get them. Any launderer's soap couldn't have gotten his clothes any brighter than that. He's glowing. And they're amazed. And what does Peter begin to do? He begins to reason and he begins to think, what can we do here? Hey, Jesus, you just say the word. We'll build three tabernacles up here and we can just camp out. It's good to be up here. Because he's got to say something, right? Something's got to be said. You've been in those situations. You feel like, i got to say something. And so normally you say something just weird or inappropriate. Not like bad inappropriate, but just it, hadn't, it wasn't needed. Something's got to be said. We do it often when we encounter passages of Scripture that reveal to us the majesty of Christ and that bring us into this mystery of worship. You know, we get into the the revelation and we start trying to say, okay, well this means that and that means this other thing. And we, we start trying to work it all out so that it can fit into our brains rather than saying, you know what, I don't know. There's freedom in being able to say, I don't know. Or, hmm, that's strange. There's a bit of freedom in that. And I think God wants, us to, wants to bring us to a place in our lives where we are captivated in worship to the extent where we don't have to understand everything to have gotten some benefit out of it. After all, He put the transfiguration in the Gospels. You try explaining all of it, all the ins and outs of it. In fact, you've got this whole dialogue about Elijah coming. You know, these three have just seen Elijah up on the mountain. And then they say, well, Jesus, when, the world, when they say that Elijah's got to come back, what does all that mean? And Jesus starts kind of talking to them in code. Oh, yeah, Elijah is going to come back. And not only is he going to come back, he's already come back. What? And he's speaking to them not literally of Elijah, but in fact, figuratively of John the Baptist, the one who was to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, the one who was to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who was to come before the Lord and prepare the Lord's people for His presence. They didn't understand this until later. Worship ought to bring us into the mystery of God. You know, we use words in worship that we don't use in most other contexts. We sang some, uh, some of them this morning. We sang holy. In what other context do you use the term holy other than to say holy moly or a holy cow? 
it's one of those special words. It's one of those words that we don't use except for in worship. Unless we're just using it trivially or vainly or lightly. We sing Alleluia, and you notice it starts with an A there. We sing it sometimes with Hallelujah, with an H. Alleluia is uh, the, the, the Greek term, and Hallelujah is the Hebrew term. It's the same word. But that's one of those words that we don't use in other contexts. It literally means praise the Lord. We find in our worship words and symbols that aren't used in other aspects of life because they communicate something to us about the majesty of Christ and something about the mystery that is worship. They open up our imaginations. They remind us that we're doing something different. That we come into some place that is different. We speak of this as a sanctuary, a holy place, or a place of holiness. And it's not just an ordinary place. We like to think of it as such. But it's a place where we meet with God in a way that we, that we don't in our own private lives. You know, there's something to be said about private worship, and there's something to be said about personal Bible reading and prayer time and that sort of thing. But there's also something to be said about the collective worship, about God's people coming together. In fact, the, the New Testament epistles, uh, the epistle to the Hebrews says, do not forsake that. Don't forget to get together to worship. Because there's something special that happens in the context of the church gathered together from all their parts of life coming together to cry out hallelujah, to cry out holy, holy, holy. You know, there's a formal name for that, the three holies, the trisagion. And we think, what in the world is a trisagion? Well, it means the three holies. Holy, holy, holy. And it's used throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. Those special things that remind us of the mystery of worship. But we find here in the Mount of Transfiguration also the mandate of discipleship. The fact is these three had to come down from the mountain. Notice God the Father interrupts Peter. Peter says, Jesus, it's good to be up here. Just let us know. We'll we'll pop up, you know, three pup tents and we'll we'll camp out. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You don't want Moses and Elijah feeling left out. And it says that immediately the Father begins speaking from heaven, basically, shut up, Peter. <laughs> this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him takes our minds back to the baptism of Jesus when the dove descends down from heaven. Again, something that ought to remind us we're dealing with a person here that can't fit into our brains. We're, we're dealing with one here that, that stretches our minds, that, that inspires our imaginations, that pushes us. 
that shakes us. Listen to Him. Hear Him. So they're frightened. I would be frightened if I suddenly heard an audible voice from heaven telling me to shut up and listen. But when they're frightened, Jesus comes and He touches them. He lays His hand upon them and He tells them, don't be afraid. Worship ought to kind of have that impact on our lives. We come into worship and we're a bit afraid. We, we, come, we ought to come in awe in a proper sense of fear. But we also... Come and are then told, don't be afraid. There's nothing to fear for your life for. I am here. But then Jesus begins directing their steps down from the mountain. They must descend that hill that they had ascended. They must come down off the mountain and they must return to others. The nine are waiting, and the multitudes beyond them. Worship brings us up the mountain, and it brings us back down the mountain as we exit those doors and we step out into our Mondays. We can't stay on the mountain. It's good to be there, but you can't stay there. There's still work to do. And that work is the work of discipleship. It's the work of living out the life of Christ in the midst of everyday living. We capture a glimpse of joy. We capture a glimpse of holiness. We capture this radiance, this brilliance, what we call glory in worship. Worship brings us face to face with reality beyond this world. And in the church, we are called to live in the love of God. To live differently. To interact with one another differently. To speak with words that are seasoned with salt. That's not just, hey, take this with a grain of salt. That is... Speaking words of grace and peace to one another. In fact, that's one of the things that blows me away about the the New Testament epistles. If you go through Paul's epistles, so you start with Romans, you got 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you got uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and on into his pastoral epistles to Timothy and Philemon and Titus. When you read them, you find him beginning and ending with with these benedictions or these Uh, gracious statements to them, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from Jesus Christ. As His words are being seasoned with salt, He's speaking grace and peace. Higher churches, they, they call it passing the peace rather than hugging necks, you know, during service. All right, you guys go hug a neck and welcome a visitor. Instead, they call it, you guys pass the peace. They don't say you guys typically, but pass the peace. And so they'll shake one another's hands and they'll say, the peace of Christ be with you. And we think of that as, you know, kind of dead formality. 
But it's only dead formality if we're dead and formal. What in the world would be wrong with telling someone the peace of Christ be with you? I'm praying for His peace and His grace to be in your life today, this week, in this moment. In the Gospels, we find the glory of Christ is is inseparably bound to His suffering. On Thursday nights, I've been walking with uh, the young adults. I call them the Utes, uh, from my cousin Vinny, of course. Uh, it, so the Utes and I get together. We've been walking through the Gospel of John, and we've been walking through through that Gospel for the last few months, and we've got yet a few months to go. We're just going verse by verse, plowing through, uh, taking it all in. And one of the things that they've started picking up on is the fact that uh, Jesus multiple times says, uh, my, my time has not yet come. And it's like, what, what does that mean? It first happened when Jesus is, um, uh, is at the wedding in Cana of Galilee and, and Mary comes and tells him, hey, they've run out of wine, you've got to do something. He tells her, my time, he says, woman, it's funny, if you read it with a little attitude, it sounds mean, but woman, my time has not yet come. And she ignores that, which is really funny. She ignores that and says, just do whatever he says. And of course, he tells him to do something. But then as you move through the gospel, you have that theme of his time not yet coming. His time has not yet come. They, they went to grasp him and they couldn't get him because his time had not yet come. And it starts building and building and building. And what you, when, when, it, when John finally says his time had come, it's on Maundy Thursday of Holy Week. And it's talking about the time of his suffering. And what he prays is, Father, glorify me. Glorify me with the glory that I know in you. His glory is inextricably linked and tied and bound to his suffering. Why? All throughout 16 through 20, you have Jesus on His final trek to Jerusalem in Matthew's Gospel. You have Jesus telling His disciples, preparing them for what's to come. We're going to Jerusalem and you do know what that means. I will be betrayed. I will be handed over. And I will suffer and I will die. And they, at first they don't get it. They, it's just in one ear, out the other. They have no earthly idea what he's talking about. At some point they seem almost dismissive. Oh, okay, okay Jesus, alright, here he is talking about that again. Alright, Jesus, hey, when, when you're in your kingdom, can we, can we receive glory? Can we sit at your right and your left? James and John, their, their mama, they were mama's boys apparently, their, their mama comes to Jesus and says, Lord, will you do me a favor? Will you allow my two boys to sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom? He begins talking to them about his suffering, about what would be his passion, about dying upon a cross. And his glory is linked to that suffering because... His glory is about self-giving love, other-oriented love. It's about 
joy being made complete and found in others. He is glorified by giving himself for the sake of others. And again, that brings us back to his majesty. This is the one who doesn't always do what we expected. He is the one that stretches our imaginations. He is the one who, who challenges our assumptions. and Pushes us. There is a movement in worship. We catch a glimpse of glory. And we gaze, the gaze of our worship ought to be upon Christ. And the life of the church ought to be directed toward Him. And as we gather for worship... And as we glimpse His glory, as we gaze upon Him, as we live out His life as the church, we find ourselves in the act of worship being moved. There's a motion that takes place in worship. We're called to to come and to receive and then to go. We're called in to worship. Invited to come. We're nurtured by the Word and by the sacraments. We receive from Him. And then we're sent back out in the benediction. As we bless one another. And as we bless the weeks that are before us. And sometimes we might make the sign of the cross. And we might get freaked out by that. But we hang a cross in our sanctuary. Some of us wear them around our necks. We talk about... Some, some of, uh, some of your, your country preachers will talk about... Lord, hide me behind your cross. In other words, let this that happens up here not be about me, but hide me behind you and what you have done. And so when we make the sign of the cross, what we're saying is the cross is before you. It is being imposed upon your life. Go in the cross. Bear it. Don't just wear it, bear it. But we're brought in, we're nurtured, and then we're sent back out because we must descend that hill that we have ascended. Put simply, we come and we look, we listen, and then we live. That is the movement or the motion that takes place in worship. We look upon Christ. We listen to His Word for His voice. And then we go and we live in His world. And if worship doesn't inspire that in us, we've not rightly worshipped. If we're not being fed, if we're not receiving, if we're not listening, we're just getting together and filling a spot. If we never go and we never live it out, then apparently we didn't listen well. Apparently we didn't receive anything worth living in. But if we don't stop and look, if we don't stop and allow ourselves to be captivated by His love and by His life, then we've also not worshipped. We've just kind of come and encouraged one another and given each other some information and we've gone on out to try to apply it.
worship is not about escaping the world. I think that's what lies under Peter's uh, Freudian slip. Hey, Jesus, let's just build some places up here and stay. He wants to get away from suffering. He wants to get away from the world below the hill. He'd rather stay. Worship is also not... uh, it's not uh, stoicism where we just kind of deny that the world is bad or where we deny that we've got problems or, or hurts, where we deny that there are problems and anxieties that go on in our lives. Worship is not kind of blocking it out like it's really not all that bad. It's really not all that bad. In worship we come and we embrace the reality of God. And we find healing and nourishment and we go to tackle the life before us. Strengthened by Him. Renewed by Him. Encouraged by Him. And challenged by Him. There's that movement in. We come in the door. There's that activity that takes place inside the door. And then there must be that movement back out. We're called and invited to look, to listen, and to live. Let's pray.